This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Do you know the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath? Welcome to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host, and today I'm with my special guest, Carrie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I'm so glad to have you. Pretty much, you are like the sociopath guru, so it seems. <laughs> I have a, a background as a criminal defense attorney and a true crime writer. And so I've spent a lot of years steeped in this kind of pathology. And so um, it has become really fascinating. And one of my uh, specialties as a defense attorney was death penalty work. So (laughs) I spent a lot of time uh, really investigating sort of the backstory of my clients, uh, largely because I was tasked with the job of saving them, which is very ironic. But so I had to sort of delve into these disarming social predators to find out what was redeeming about them, you know, what was in their history, what was in their childhood, you know, what could I do to save them? And so when I was, um, when I had clients like this, or when I was faced with this task, one of the uh, the things that we used to say in, in the criminal defense world, which would be the kiss of death, was to have a client that had antisocial personality disorder, which is just another way of saying a psychopath. Because when you have, and, and by the way, I should say that there are actually very few of them, ironically enough, in the prison system, which is actually a scary, a scary thought because one in 25 of us are sociopaths, but there are less than from that population that are psychopaths. So about 5% of that population is a psychopath. So, so that's kind of a startling and stunning little factoid. But um, when you get a client or a person is a true psychopath, they cannot be reformed. So they cannot be rehabilitated. They cannot be quote unquote saved because they are in most instances born this way. So those are your Jeffrey Dahmers, your Ted Bundys, um, they're, they're very disarming because in most scenarios, they're very charming. And so they, they are master manipulators. And that's what a sociopath and a psychopath have in common. So let me just start off by saying, I think, you know, the labels are important only because we want to be able to identify the kind of behavior and character trait that these individuals show. But it's not, um, it's not so important for the person that is experiencing it because we know what we feel, right? But so I should start off by saying that every sociopath and psychopath is a narcissist. And I think the narcissist is what most listeners are more familiar with. Right. So we have all of those stereotypical uh, character traits, right? Grandiosity, uh, arrogance, master manipulators, people that really just um, drain the life out of their victims. <laughs> and so I like to say that people that are empathic, that are, they become sort of the gasoline for the narcissist, right? They're fueling that supply. And so a narcissist, for those of us unfortunate enough to have been exposed to them, feel in their company, feel very drained because it doesn't matter how much supply we give them. They're going to use us up, right? Use us up, discard us and find another who will then replenish their supply. So that's the very brief definition sort of of narcissism and narcissists. So when you get to the the large, the longer spectrum of psychopathy, the true psych- psychopath, you have the extreme version of that, 
which is somebody who has no guilt, no remorse, like really no empathy at all. And they are also joining your life. <laughs> and, you know, so I, I like to say that people that are in the presence of a psychopath, they're actually experiencing a psychopath because there's this sort of creepy, eerie feeling that you get that you almost want to have to go take a shower after you're in their presence because you feel like there's something off about them, but you almost can't put your finger on it. So that's the psychopath because they're very charming. And, you know, just for like glib's sake, I like to use the Disney princes as <laughs> the, uh, the epitome of the psychopath. <laughs> you know, it just, it infuriates me that we have this, this scenario playing out, you know, from, from when we're little girls, you know, we look at this whole idea of the prince, Prince Charming coming in and rescuing the princess, you know, but if you really drill down into who those princes are, they actually are psychopaths. And, and I would just encourage your listeners to um, really take a look at Frozen. <laughs> it's like, so, so anyway, that's, that's just my little side note there that I really, it's just one of my pet peeves. But if you really, really want to drill down on what a psychopath is, that is what they are. So they're very charming. They will sweep you off your feet. You won't even know what hit you until you start to reflect back and until maybe they drain your entire bank account or, you know, they've, they've just taken from you until you really can't function anymore. That's what they do. And so one of the hallmarks that I, that I like to just bring out and this, you know, Ted Bundy, again, is a perfect example of this is a hallmark of a psychopath is somebody that's going to use something to manipulate you. Right. So they'll, they'll pretend that they're injured They'll pretend that, you know, like Ted Bundy had the, his arm in a sling, you know, some form of debilitation, but it's not real. You know, like uh, you'll see a psychopath sometimes will, will come to dinner. You'll have a date with one, he'll come to dinner and he'll have like a, a brace around his neck and he'll tell you he's been in a car accident, right? I mean, these are some of the hallmarks. It's the pity play, you know, pity me. And, and let me sweep you in, right? And it's, and it's also, unfortunately, very similar to what a narcissist does. So it's very diff- hard to differentiate between the two until you're in their company for a while. So, so that's just, some, just a, a little tidbit there on like how to maybe avoid these predators. You know? <laughs> but you have to be really aware because they're master manipulators. Right. They say all the right things. They do all the right things until that time when they know to flip the switch. And then all of a sudden they're attacking you at your insecurities and they're taking you away from people that you love. And they're, it's good to know these separate traits. Yeah. It's sort of like a murder in slow motion. You know, it's sort of, you know, they're going to take everything your identity, your safety, your your security, your finances, your everything, and you'll be left with nothing. And there's, and oftentimes there's not a whole lot you can do about it because they really just, they're missing that connection, that thing that makes them human. So that's, that's the interesting part of it. And a sociopath is sort of in between the two of them. Sometimes, I mean, it's very, very difficult to, to spot a sociopath, but they can fake good in similar ways that a psychopath can, but actually they're more adept at it. So they, if, if you've heard of this, uh, the phrase, the mask of sanity, right? So they, they're very chameleon-like. They will, they'll understand what they're supposed to do, but they're not going to actually feel it. So, so that's, that's an interesting, so they know how to play the game. They know how to play the game. It's sort of like, um, what is the phrase? The phrase that's that's used pretty often is they they know the dance but not the music. So it's you're not going to know it immediately when you're in their presence. But in many cases, a sociopath is not this overbearing, charming person that a psychopath is. So there's a little bit of a differentiation between them. And in many cases, a sociopath will have guilt, or at least a they'll understand that 
they'll understand that the person that they've done this to, you know, is going to hurt, but it's different from empathy or remorse. So there, there are really very subtle differences between them, but in, in every case, you don't want to be in their presence. <laughs> you don't want to be married to them. You don't want to be in a relationship with them. You want to run. So, so it's, it's just, it's fascinating from just a purely intellectual perspective, you know, what, what makes these people tick, you know, what, um, how do they function? Because they sociopaths, as I said, one in 25 are among us and most of them are not in the criminal system. So we're living, right? Yeah. They're CEOs, they're lawyers, they're doctors, they're police officers, they're, you know, they're in these positions of authority and power, which makes it doubly dangerous. Right. That makes so much sense. Absolutely. I always thought a sociopath was worse than a psychopath. Is that incorrect? Well, I mean, I guess it could always be a matter of opinion, but, um, but a psychopath, I mean, the interesting thing about all of these, the narcissist, sociopath, and psychopath is that you're not going to find them in our mental health system. You know, they're not, they're not out there seeking treatment for anything because they don't believe anything's wrong. Right. So they're very, very difficult to spot, but a psychopath in many cases, I mean, I guess the only way to really maybe differentiate for the, the audience you have, I like to use um, television examples, right? <laughs> so you have like the mafia kingpin, right? The mafia kingpin could be a sociopath or a psychopath, but oftentimes the psychopath is the one who's actually doing the killing or doing the harm and not too concerned about it. So like Dexter. Okay. So Dexter is your, quintessential psychopath, right? But we actually like him <laughs> because, right? Because he, he can't help what he does. This is who he is at the very core of who he is, is he is a killer and he can't stop doing it. So it's like an addiction for him. Sociopath is, is a little bit more manipulative. They're not necessarily, I mean, they're not necessarily killers. That's the, that's the difference, right? I mean, they're, they're among us. They're very effective and efficient at what they do because they don't have a lot of empathy. So they're not getting bogged down with, with the emotions of things. So, right. so it, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, in my, in my opinion, I, I think a psychopath is the more dangerous version and they're the ones that, that really can't be helped. I mean, they, they cannot be stopped. And can you imagine like rehabilitating Dexter? I mean, he tried. You know, he tried to redirect it, right? By killing only the bad people, but he's still a killer. So, right. Another example I think of is Joe from you. Did you watch you? Oh, yeah. 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 First yeah. season, how do you not fall in love with this guy? But clearly, he's killing people. Yeah. But you're like, yeah. it's from a good place. <laughs> <laughs> Total psychopath. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating though. I mean, it's, you, we bring up a good point because I think, you know, so it kind of brings me to the whole idea of like true crime, you know, why are we fascinated by true crime? There's a, a really great book. Um, I forget the author of it, but it's called Savage Appetites where people are just mesmerized by it. And I think it's that, that whole fascination, because to me, it's very similar to watching a horror movie, right? I mean, it's that fascination of sitting on your living room couch turning on the TV and being able to turn it off. It's not the monster in your living room. It's the monster on the screen. And so there's some kind of titillation with that. There's some fascination that, you know, oh, these people are, you know, they're on the screen. They're not people I would actually encounter in everyday life. And yet we do. And so, you know, that's the real horror is that when that monster comes off that screen it is actually in your living room. Maybe he's your spouse, your lover, your partner, your date, your boss, you know, and that's the real horror of it. Yes, because it's a lot harder to get out of your living room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't, we want to watch it sort of, you know, we want to be distanced from it. And yet there is that fascination of, 
And I think, you know, the, the true crime audience in particular is women. And so, you know, and I've, I've thought a lot about this, you know, I mean, as, as a woman writing true crime, you know, I'm fascinated by it too. And I'm fascinated from the perspective that, you know, I mean, sadly, in many cases, most of the victims are women. So, you know, we're watching this and we're identifying with these, the prey, the victim, the, the, you know, the women that are falling prey. And that's not to say that there aren't female psychopaths, sociopaths, or narcissists. There certainly are, but the majority are not. And so I think there's that sort of um, fascination and horror as well that we, we women are identifying with and also fearful of the people that might do this. So it's, it's just an interesting split. You know, it's funny you said that because I actually posted something like that. And I was like, you know, the reason why we identify with true crime is because sometimes we see stories that remind us of ourselves, remind us of a situation you might have been in, you know, and sometimes you can look at it and then learn for when you see flags later on. So I feel like in a way, it's a learning experience watching these people go through all this, either being like, holy crap, that was me. Or if something starts to happen, you're like, light bulb, okay, time to move on. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it is, uh, it, it's informative and educational, you know, but interestingly enough, I think it's also, it speaks to women because so many of the perpetrators prey on our vulnerabilities. You know, they prey on that our, our need or our want to please, to be the good girls, you know, to be the one that is always second guessing our own intuition, which I think is a fascinating, like almost sub argument, you know, that it comes out. It's that, it's that whole gift of fear, you know, where we I forget there's another author that wrote about that um, in a really, really interesting book called the gift of fear. But he talks about how women will second guess their own intuition, you know, and, and because we're afraid to make waves, we're afraid to offend, you know, this, this person that might be giving us vibes that we should really pay attention to, but we don't pay attention to it, you know, for whatever reason. And that's what gets us in trouble. And so I think you're right. I mean, we watch all these shows and we think, you know, they're, but for the grace of God, go I, you know, it's like, this could have happened to me, but you know, or I would never do that. And yet when you're in that situation, it's hard to know what you really would do because it's so disarming. You know, it's so destabilizing when you're in the presence of one of these individuals, you know, you have to be able to think quickly on your feet to be able to spot it and stop it and to really, really drill down and listen to your intuition. Part of our problem, too, is we're fixers. We think we can save them. And no, honey, they they don't want to be saved. (laughs) They're fine with who they are. That's absolutely true. That's a really good point. Yeah, they don't they don't think there's anything wrong with them, you know, but I think you're right. It's it's our nature to want to fix, to want to be a caretaker, to want to smooth everything over. We're the we're the big communicators, you know, (laughs) we want everything to be okay. You know, I love the word surrender because in it embedded in it is the word her, right? So surrender her. We're always surrendering to people or giving away our power, our, you know, our identities, our voice to everyone else. Right. And so what does that leave us as? It leaves us as shells. So when we are shells, we become prey. And that's the the real message, I think, behind a lot of these shows. Right. It's almost like they have 3D vision and like they can see, oh, this one looks weak or they can pick you out of a herd. It's crazy how they do that. There could be a whole bar of women who are powerful, this and that. And there's going to be one or two girls that, you know, are really just they're not at their A game. Maybe something happened recently and they're just feeling down on themselves and they will zero in on that girl. They just, they have it. It's crazy. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why they're called predators. It's they like going hunting. They're looking for that, that's that spike, you know, <laughs> that that baby deer that is just going to be vulnerable. It's going to let their guard down. It's not gonna, I mean, I mean, especially when you mentioned a, a bar situation, I mean that you're right, that is a perfect opportunity for a predator to select a spray. And it's so unfair in a lot of ways because, you know, you want to go to a bar, you want to relax, you want to let your guard down, but it's almost like we don't have permission to, you know, we can't let our guard down because the minute that we do, we become that target. And so it's, it's really unfair, but I think it's also a fact. And I think if you're going to be, you know, that's why I always say the buddy system, you know, it's really, it's a frustrating thing, you know, because we want to be independent. We want to be able to go hiking alone, go for a jog alone, go to the bar alone if we need to, you know, I mean, there are all these things that we almost can't do safely alone and it's not fair, but it is a fact. And I think it's something that, I mean, I know I've had, I've had colleagues, I've had girlfriends that will tell me I'm going to do it anyway. You know, nobody's going to tell me what to do, but the, the problem is there, there is this, you know, there are certain realities that we we live in that we deal with. And if we choose to ignore that, we're just setting ourselves up, you know, for that sociopathic takeover. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, it's, I think it's just, it's just smart to have that, that gift of fear, you know, to have that intuition that, you know, maybe it's not a good idea to carry two bags of groceries by yourself down an alley to your apartment and fumble with your keys to try to get up the stairs, three flights to your apartment. Maybe that's not a good idea. You know, that's what the author of gift of fear writes about, but, but those are some of the things that like, maybe we can't do that because it's not safe, not because we can't do it, but because it's really just, it's the other people. It's like being a defensive driver, right? We know we're a good driver, but it's the other people around us that we have to watch out for. And I think that's all part of our conditioning and our retraining our brain to think like that. Right. It just sucks, though, because, like, you don't want to live your life thinking you be a victim, you know? So it's like, of course, you want to go out. You want to live your life. You want to go to concerts. You want to go to the movies. You want to go and do all these things. But you don't know when someone's going to show up and ruin the party. And you just, you never know. Right. And I, and I think that's what those, a lot of the true crime shows show. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of that stranger danger type thing. You know, we, we all have our guard up, but you know, there are things that compromise us. I mean, alcohol, being out late, being alone, not having a ride home. I mean, those things that just really are part of the fabric of being a woman, which is unfortunate. But I think it is a reality. And, you know, and unless you're going to be a black belt in martial arts, you know, and, and constantly be on guard, I think it's something you have to really, you know, weave into your lifestyle. You know, I mean, I think as, as a true crime writer, as a criminal defense attorney, you know, I also do a lot of family law, which involves a lot of domestic violence cases. And, and you know, I mean, there's always that element of risk. There's always that element of danger, you know, because you're dealing with dangerous situations, sometimes dangerous people. You know, I know that pathology very well, but even then I always have my guard up because it's, it's just the situation that I'm in, but I, I don't make the mistake of thinking that this is unique to me because it's not, it's, it's part of all of us, unfortunately. Do you ever feel like some of your clients are like trying to smooth you, like trying to pull one over and you're like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I think I go in with the, I start with the assumption or the presumption, I guess, is that, you know, I almost don't want to know the truth about, you know, what they did or why they did it. Because I can only present a case that I can defend. And the state can only present a case based on what they can prove. 
So the rest of that almost becomes irrelevant to how I defend them. So I don't ever start with that premise of, did you do it? Or, uh, you know, tell me why you did it. Now, for mitigation purposes, where I'm trying to find some redemption in their backstory to, to help save them, I have to go through their life story and find the the places where they might have turned. You know, it's sort of like the making of a murderer, except you're going back into their histories. You know, did they have mental health issues? Were they, you know, do they have a huge rap sheet? Do they have uh, domestic violence in their history? You know, things like that. Did they string up a cat? You know, I mean, those are those are the things that I look for. But as far as being schmoozed by someone, I mean, I think, you know, I think I'm, I'm the last gatepost as, you know, as their lawyer, I'm their last gatepost. So if they're not going to tell me the truth, if they're, if they're going to try to snow me or pull one over on me, I can't help them. So, you know, whether they do or don't, I don't think it's in their best interest to do it, but um, I've certainly had experts that have been schmoozed over, you know, I'm trying to bring in a, you know, a psychiatrist or a psychologist or somebody to help me present my mitigation case. And, you know, they might want to smooth over that, you know, sometimes they, they pretend to be mentally ill. They call that malingering. They pretend to be mentally ill so they can get out of the death penalty or, you know, get out of things. So, so yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of that. And I think you just have to go in with that presumption that you're in a world where things may not be as they seem and people are not going to be as honest as they need to be, but it's not in their best interest to schmooze me over. Right. You're the last hope. So it's like, come on, you've got to be real here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I got to be able to defend it or support it or, you know, shoot holes into the prosecution's case. And so, you know, if I'm if I'm being fed a bunch of untruths, it's really hard to do that. Right. I couldn't imagine having to defend a murderer. Like that's gotta be hard. You know, it it is hard, but I think it's um, you know, what what keeps me going or what keeps me centered is this this idea that I really I believe in the constitution, I believe in people deserving a fair trial. And so I try to separate the monster from the monstrous acts. You know, <laughs> I try to be able to, to look at the case objectively and keep all of my emotions out of it, which is kind of an interesting position to be in because, you know, I'm, now I'm setting myself up as like really sort of being this omniscient, you know, lens, right. To say, well, it doesn't matter to me whether they did it or not. In fact, it's better if I don't know, because I need to be able to set it up. So how can I make sure that they have a fair trial? How can I make sure that I present all of the evidence I need to present or, you know, defend them to the fullest? And so that's, you know, part of zealous representation, right? So, so that's what keeps me going. I don't really get bogged down into, um, you know, who they are as, as people. For me, that's, that's a fascination. That's almost like an aside from my legal work. You know, it's like, I'm fascinated by the things that they do, why they do the things they do. I'm fascinated by human pathology. And that's just on a purely personal level, really. You know, it's like, what what was that turning point in their life? You know, were they born this way? It's sort of that, are they natural born killers or was it, you know, something in their history that made them this way? And so it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting from that perspective. I actually began my career as a prosecutor. So I've really seen both sides of it, you know, and, and as a prosecutor, I was constructing a case against my client or against the client. And I really didn't have a lot of interaction with anybody really involved in the case other than the police officers who were testifying, maybe the experts. But then as a defense lawyer, I was deconstructing the prosecution's case. And so for me, just from a creative standpoint, that was far more interesting and compelling to me, which is why I prefer being on the defense side. <laughs> I never looked at it that way. But that makes sense. Because sometimes you watch these, the shows, you know, and like this person did horrible, horrible things. And you're like, 
how can this person stand up and fight for them? You know, and something that I, I think actually kind of just hit me today is not you're trying to get them off. You're, that's not you're what you're trying to do. You're just trying to prove maybe why they are the way they are or if there's issues that cause them to be this way, things like that. So that would make a little more sense. And the fact that you actually get to dive deep into the mind, that is like fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's, it's truly fascinating to, to do that and to, you know, and, and, and in many cases you can actually, it's like having a blueprint in front of you. You can actually see how it happened and how it evolved that way, you know, and, and you can actually like, it's like a, a, a human genome roadmap to how they got to the end, you know, where they are today. And so it's interesting because the last book that I wrote, Aurora, which was about the mass shooter, James Holmes, and his psychiatrist who treated him. You know, you talk about a, a, a true psychopath. I mean, he was, you know, he didn't have a, a history that would have led anyone to think that he would have committed this horrible crime. He was the Colorado movie killer, went in and shot up the movie theater during the premiere of The Dark Knight. You know, you think about somebody like James Holmes and his lawyers that had to defend him. And, you know, he was such a hated, hated person. And, you know, and yet he had a mother who loved him and was horrified by what had happened. And so I became really fascinated by that angle too. Like, you know, what about the the mothers of these, you know, mass shooters or people that do these really horrific acts? I mean, they obviously have known the person their whole life and have loved them. And how do they reconcile the horror with the person that they know? So I found that a really interesting juxtaposition, you know, as a mother myself, you know, and thinking about that and how, you know, what if you, you know, what if you are the mother of James Holmes? I mean, how, how do you come to terms with that? And I, I just think that's, that's interesting on so many levels. There's such a ripple effect of crime. You know, there's the, the killer, there's the people that represent the killer. There are the victims of the killer, the victims' families, there are the survivors. And so it's the first responders. So Aurora really sort of captured all of that all at once. And not to mention what it did to his treating psychiatrist, you know who had that on, you know, weighted down, people were just vilifying her saying, you know, why couldn't you have stopped him? And so it became that whole, it set up the whole issue of how do you spot and stop a killer? Can you? And how do you prevent this from happening? Can you? And it just was just a, a fascinating amalgamation of everything that I had done as a lawyer, as a crime writer, you know, with criminal pathology, just to try to understand the mind of James Holmes was a monumental task. I can only imagine. Did he explain why he did it? Well, you know, it's interesting because he had a notebook that was produced, you know, after the mass shooting. And it came out at trial in about five pages of his notebook. He writes one word and it's the word why. And he writes it over and over and over again. And the word gets bigger and bigger as he goes through the pages. So he does not even understand himself or why. He, I mean, he was a, you know, he was a brilliant doctoral student in the neurosciences program at one of the most prestigious universities in the country. And, uh, and so one of the theories that he puts out there is, you know, he deliberately survived his mass shooting so that people could study his brain. So, you know, either that's like outrageously narcissistic or it's, he's really confused about who he is and how he became this. How did and then, you know, the, the public's outcry. How does somebody like James Holmes, who is literally watched over by professors and faculty and psychiatrists, how 
does he become this mass shooter? And so it really just sort of brings out the whole, you know, question of how somebody like this lives among us, right? Survives in the system, gets into college, gets into graduate school, has a girlfriend, systematically plots to murder as many people as he possibly can in what he describes as a kill box, you know, how does somebody do this? Like, where do they come from? What makes them who they are? You know, is he a psychopath? Is he a sociopath? Is he mentally ill? I mean, these are, of course, were all of the questions that were posed to jurors. You know, he put forth the insanity defense, was found not insane, it's just fascinating. I, I don't. I just think it's a very complicated issue and question, and it just, you know, can make your head spin. <laughs> oh, I can totally see that. It's they're brilliant. You know, like they are so brilliant. You could put that to such good use, but instead they plot these horrible crimes. It's really. I know it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing and, and, it, and it keeps happening. And so it becomes like this epidemic in our country. I mean, you know, and of course I'm speaking specifically to mass shootings, but it really has a much larger net, you know, it's sort of like what, what propels people like this to amass an arsenal and plot this and, you know, I mean, and how do they, I mean, some of them are in the mental health system, not all of them, but some of them are. And it's this really complicated web of different factors. And it's really, it's hard to be able to identify any one thing. But I think that it's really, it's critical to continue to present the problem and continue to um, educate, you know, on it. And that's why I think it's critical that people understand that pathology because the more that you know who you're dealing with, I mean, and specifically with, you know, what we started the conversation with, with narcissism and social sociopathy and psychopathy. I mean, why is that important? It's important because these relationships are dangerous. So people that get involved with people that have this personality disorder, they are literally on a path toward death. And the only time we ever really hear about it is when there's a victim, when there's somebody who's dead, a dead body, right? But it's everything that leads up to that. And so I think the more that people understand that, the more that they're tuned into that, the more shows that we see on that, the more we're going to be able to identify what that is and maybe save ourselves. Do you think any of that has to do with like, I'm wanting to be famous? Um, no, <laughs> so, um, you know, it's an interesting question because okay, you think about like a terrorist, right? A terrorist generally, I think in, in most cases, wants credit. They want credit for the thing that they've done. And there are certainly, um, cases where particularly, I mean, just to the mass shooting arena, there are cases where other mass shooters will be copycats and they'll have, you know, they'll idolize people like, um, you know, they'll, I, unfortunately people, the um, Sandy Hook killer idolized James Holmes, you know, I mean, so they'll, they do kind of play off of each other and idolize one another. Um, I think that it's hard to say, I don't think there's one umbrella that fits all of them, unfortunately, other than they are, you know, between the ages of 18 and 24 and, have access to a gun, you know, I mean, there's not, there's not other common denominators because, you know, as we've seen, I mean, you know, some of them have been bullied, right? So you have the Columbine killers, you have the the one that was just happened in in Nashville, you know, some believe that they've been, what is it? Persecuted. Yeah. Wronged, persecuted. They've been bullied. And so they're out for revenge. So there's that group, but you know, Holmes didn't have any of that. So he completely defies that stereotype. So it's it's really hard to say. I don't think you can pigeonhole them, but certainly they they do seem to admire each other, you know. But I don't think that ne- that's not necessarily their motivating factor. So like for Holmes, for example, he had no uh, no history of bullying, 
He had no rage or depression that he identified. You know, he didn't have anything that you can pinpoint that would make it a, like a slam dunk, you know, like, oh, he did it because of this or, you know, he hated a teacher. Or he hated, I mean, there. so it just defies that kind of um, compartmentalization, which is what makes it so challenging to be able to say, well, if we could just do X, Y, Z, maybe we could stop that epidemic. Right. Actually, I am starting a nonprofit and it's called the Crime Connection. And mm-hmm. it's about, you know, you know, there's reasons why people do what they do. And it could be bullying. It could be childhood trauma. It could be other traumas that were never dealt with. And it just builds. And, you know, a lot of like the serial killers and everything, you know, they didn't have control when they were young because either they were abused, molested, neglected. So it's their chance to get the control back. And what I'm hoping that this will do is open people's eyes to, first of all, treat your children. <laughs> Second of all, if you see something going crazy at even an early age, get them into therapy so they can try to work through it. So maybe we don't have all this going down the road. I think that's a, that's an excellent point. And I, I would just um, add to that by saying that, it's that whole thing. If you see something, say something. But a lot of these people, especially the mass shooters, they have something in writing. They produce something. And that's that's the critical piece. You know, they either have a notebook, a manifesto, uh, email, a video, something they post to YouTube, uh, something on social media. They're They're telling somebody that this is what they're doing. The problem is... Not every person that does that is going to eventually carry out the mass shooting. And I think people are afraid to get involved. You know, they don't want to be wrong, right? There's this whole idea of like, if I pick somebody out and I say, hey, they wrote a, the Virginia Tech killer, for example, was in a creative writing class. He wrote very disturbing poems and disturbing plays and that his teachers read, you know? And so nobody wants to call him out on it. Right. Cause there's a, there's a way to say, well, maybe that's just his creative style. You know, is he really going to act out what he's writing about? You know? So, so I think that we need to be able to, to give people the, the freedom to be able to identify somebody and not be sued or vilified if they're wrong, right? Because what if they're right? <laughs> what if they're right and they're going to stop, you know, another horrific act? But I think that's that's really what factors into some of this, where people are just afraid and it's not, you know, they're not always going to get it right. And we don't, we're never going to know how many are actually stopped. Because again, we don't hear about it unless it actually happens and it's carried out. So I think it's... um. I mean, I think it's great that you're that you're doing that and, and promoting that because I think again, the more people are educated about this, the more they understand what they're looking for and why it's a scary thing and why they should be reporting it. I think that's that's key to to getting at least more of a conversation going. You know, at least people not being so afraid that they say, Oh, this guy's really weird, you know, or in in moving away from that person rather than reporting that person. Right. It's so important if you see signs. I mean, they have it all over here. I'm in Florida and it's, you know, see something, say something. And um, actually, it was on the news here not that long ago. There was a teacher who had made comments to another teacher about harming students. And so, uh, yeah, she is now like, off. They took her guns away, and uh, so she wasn't working. But they're bringing her back, which I think is crazy. Parents are outraged. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, wow. But at least you know somebody said something. Someone said something's not right. It really yeah. seems to do maybe a whole lot other than you know she lost her guns. But I mean, who's to say she can't go get another one? Wow. Yeah, that's really scary. It is scary. I mean, it's a real it's it's a real quandary for 
for people, I think. I mean, I understand that too. It's like a, on the one hand, we have all of these freedoms in our country. And on the other hand, it can be a double-edged sword, you know, where people are, they, they take away your freedom, you know, when you haven't really done anything. And then what do we, are we, do we have to wait till they do something? It's sort of, to me, it really reminds me a lot of, um, I mean, I know I'm, I'm jumping back to this topic of, of psychological abuse, right? So many, many states in this country do not recognize that as a crime. It has to get to the level of homicide or aggravated assault in order for the victim to get any type of justice. And yet it's happening. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, in some cases even more damaging than physical abuse. So I think, again, it's that, that sort of that fine line. I mean, let's, you know, get the message out, educate people that it is domestic violence, you know, just because you can't see it yet doesn't mean it's not a crime and it's not happening and, and equally, you know, destabilizing, demoralizing and hurtful. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's really all education and, you know, just informing, holding it down, you know? We need stricter laws, like stalking. Why Why are you allow people to stalk people for so long? Well, well, they haven't done anything yet. Keyword is yet. It's coming. Why do you have to wait until I'm bleeding or like something happens? Be right. proactive. Let's do something. <laughs> like, what are we waiting on? Yeah. Well, the fact of the matter is they are doing something. I mean, the stalkers are doing something. They're committing crimes, even though it's not, you know, again, something where you have a body bag. I mean, there's there's something happening to the victims. And I think that's, it's a real gap in our in our justice system. I mean, it really is across the board nationwide. It's just very, I mean, they're, very few states have stalking laws, for example. Some of the, and the stalking laws they do have are misdemeanors, you know. So it's it's really hard to get any type of accountability, you know. So if there's no repercussion to the act they're doing, they're just going to keep doing it, you know. Right. There's not regulation. There's not legislation. I mean, it's it's a real it's a problem. It's a problem area. I mean, there's so many there's so many problems <laughs> right now. It's hard to, it's hard to choose, but. Um, but that's certainly one of them. And that's, that's something I'm very passionate about too. It's like, how do we, how do we rectify that and get some help for these silent victims? You know? Yes. That's another thing I would like to try to work on is strengthening laws. Like certain laws, they need to be. And if somebody is a repeat offender, lock them away. Like, if you're a child predator, I am sorry. You do not change. Child predators, it's a sickness. That's what they want. That's what they're going to get. Put them in prison. They never come out. Yeah. I mean, we really have this, um, I think it's a misguided mentality of, you know, let's give them second and third chances. You know, let's, let's, they can be rehabilitated. You know, I mean, where's the accountability in that? And, you know, and I'm saying this from, a defense attorney perspective, right? And so I know that's a really hard position to take, uh, you know, in terms of what I do, but I, I really fundamentally believe that. I think that, you know, if we just keep excusing, if we just keep minimizing what is happening, you know, what the crimes are and what's happening, then the victims get marginalized. There's not true justice that's being served. I mean, I'm not saying that I agree with mandatory sentencing laws either, because I think the crime, you know, punishment has to fit the crime. But I do think that, you know, just slapping on the wrist and, you know, having this sort of revolving door where people can keep repeating, 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 it's, it's just, it's not justice and it's not serving any purpose. And I think it's a, it's that whole sort of, mentality again that it's it's re-victimizing and i'm and i'm really speaking in largely to the area of domestic violence because i see that happening on a daily basis where people are violating orders of protection over and over and over again 
and it's a slap on the wrist, you know, and it's, uh, you know, it's, let's give them another chance. Let's give them probation. They violate probation. Let's get, you know, it's like, it's just enough already, you know, let's, let's have some accountability. Let's have some, you know, repercussion for the action so that there can be some logic to what's imposed. You know, it just, it's, it incenses me because I see it really from both sides. I see the victims just not getting any relief. And I see the criminals not being held accountable. Absolutely. And after a while, they, they keep upping the ante. So it's like, you know where this is going to end? It's going to end with murder. It started with a black guy and it's going to end with a body bag. Like, you know, you got to stop it. Yeah. I mean, and that's often, unfortunately, how it comes to the attention of the legal system. You know, I mean, it's just that's that's the aftermath of years and years of abuse. And it's very sad. It is very sad. No, that'd be better. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, there just needs to be more um, people in people fighting in the right positions to be fighting. So in the legislature, you know, more, um, you know, more voices that need to be heard in that arena, I think. And it's just, it's a, it's a really, it's a tough stance to take because it's not very popular, but I think you know, sometimes you have to do the unpopular thing to get the right result. I'm willing to be unpopular. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, just standing up for your convictions, I think is important. So. Right. Absolutely. So you have a few books out, don't you? I have um, eight books and I have, <laughs> and they can all be found on Amazon under my last name. Drobin. And I also have a website, carriedrobin.com. And that's where you'll find my, my latest book, Aurora, and many of my other books. Awesome. I would love to have you back on. I <laughs> swear to God, I could just pick and read all day. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Thank you. It's been really fun. If you ever want to come back, let me know. And we can talk about whatever. I am so down. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Pleasure being on. Look out for those links in the bottom of the show notes where you can also find my links. So you can like, follow, subscribe, and leave that five-star review that much easier. Do you want to be on the show? Contact me. You can find me on all my social media platforms. All right, you guys. We'll talk crime another time. Bye. Bye.